Chapter 1, Part 2 of The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1 by Frederick Wimper men of war part two the day for such battles as this is over there may be others as gloriously fought but never again by the same means ships armaments and modes of attack and defence are and will be increasingly different those who have read nelson's private letters and journals will remember how he gloried in the appreciation of his subordinate officers just before trafalgar's happy and yet fatal day when he had explained to them his intention to attack the enemy with what was practically a wedge-formed fleet he was determined to break their line and nelson-like he did but that which he facetiously christened the nelson touch would itself nowadays be broken up in a few minutes and thrown into utter confusion by any powerfully armed vessel hovering about under steam or if the wedge of wooden vessels were allowed to form as they approached the apex a couple of ironclads would take them in hand coolly one by one and send them to the bottom while their guns might as well shoot peas at the ironclads as the shot of former days taking the victory as a fair type of the best warships of her day a day when there was not that painful uncertainty with regard to naval construction and armament existing now in spite of our vaunted progress we still know that in the presence of a powerful steam frigate with heavy guns or an eleven thousand ton ironclad she would be literally nowhere she was one of the last specimens and a very perfect specimen too of the wooden age this is the age of iron and steam one of the largest vessels of her day she is now excelled by hundreds employed in ordinary commerce the royal navy to-day possesses frigates nearly three times her tonnage while we have ironclads of five times the same the monster great eastern which has proved a monstrous mistake is twenty two thousand five hundred tons but size is by no means the only consideration in constructing vessels of war and indeed there are good reasons to believe that in the end vessels of moderate dimensions will be preferred for most purposes of actual warfare of the advantages of steam power there can of course be only one opinion but as regards iron versus oak there are many points which may be urged in favor of either with a preponderance in favor of the former a strong iron ship strange as it may appear is not more than half the weight of a wooden vessel of the same size and class it will to the unthinking seem absurd to say that an iron ship is more buoyant than one of oak but the fact is that the proportion of actual weight in iron and wooden vessels of ordinary construction is about six to twenty the iron ship therefore stands high out of the water and to sink it to the same line will require a greater weight on board from this fact the actual thinness of its walls its carrying capacity and stowage are so much the greater this which is a great point in vessels destined for commerce would be equally important in war but these remarks do not apply to the modern armored vessel we have ironclads with plates eighteen inches and upward in thickness 
what is the consequence their actual weight with that of the necessary engines and monster guns employed is so great that a vast deal of room on board has to be unemployed day by day we hear of fresh experiments in gunnery which keep pace with the increased strength of the vessels the invulnerable of today is the vulnerable of tomorrow and there are many leading authorities who believe in a return to a smaller and weaker class of vessel provided however with all the appliances for great speed and offensive warfare at a distance nelson's preference for small easily worked frigates over the great ships of the line is well known and were he alive to-day we can well believe that he would prefer a medium-sized vessel of strong construction to steam with great speed and carrying heavy but perhaps not the heaviest guns to one of those modern unwieldy masses of iron which have had so far a most disastrous history the former might so to speak act while the latter was making up her mind even a nelson might hesitate to risk a vessel representing six or seven hundred thousand pounds of the nation's money in anything short of an assured success we have however yet to learn the full value and power of our ironclad fleet of its cost there is not a doubt some time ago our leading newspaper estimated the expense of construction and maintenance of our existing ironclads at eighteen million pounds mr reed states that they have cost the country a million sterling per annum since the first organization of the fleet warfare will soon become a luxury only for the richest nations and regarding it in this light perhaps the very men who are racking their powers of invention to discover terrible engines of war are the greatest peacemakers after all they may succeed in making it an impossibility hereafter naval powers prepared with the necessary fleet will be able to transport the base of operations to any point on the enemy's coast turn the strongest positions and baffle the best arranged combinations thanks to steam the sea has become a means of communication more certain and more simple than the land and fleets will be able to act the part of movable bases of operations rendering them very formidable to powers which possessing coasts will not have any navy sufficiently powerful to cause their being respected so far as navy to navy is concerned this is undoubtedly true yet there is another side to the question a fort is sometimes able to inflict far greater damage upon its naval assailants than the latter can inflict upon it a single shot may send a ship to the bottom whilst the fire from the ship during action is more or less inaccurate at sebastopol the whole french fleet firing at ranges of sixteen hundred to eighteen hundred yards failed to make any great impression on a fort close to the water's edge while a wretched earthen battery mounting only five guns inflicted terrible losses and injury on four powerful englishmen of war actually disabling two of them without itself losing one man or having a gun dismounted while as has been often calculated the cost of a single sloop of war with its equipment will construct a fine fort which will last almost forever while that of two or three line of battleships would raise a considerable fortress whilst the monster ironclad with heavy guns would deal out death and destruction when surrounded by an enemy's fleet of lighter iron vessels or wooden ones as strong as was the victory she would herself run great risk in approaching closely fortified harbors and coasts where a single shot from a gun heavy enough to pierce her armor might sink her her safety would consist in firing at long ranges and in steaming backwards and forwards 
the lessons of the crimean war as regards the navy were few but of the gravest importance and they have led to results of which we cannot yet determine the end the war opened by a russian attack on a turkish squadron at sinope november twentieth eighteen fifty three that determined the fact that a whole fleet might be annihilated in an hour or so by the use of large shells no more necessity for grappling in close quarters the iron age was full in view and wooden walls had outlived their usefulness and must perish but the lesson had to be again impressed and that upon a large english and french fleet yet in fairness to our navy it must be remembered that the russians had spent every attention to rendering sebastopol nearly impregnable on the seaside while a distinguished writer who was present throughout the siege assures us that until the preceding spring they had been quite indifferent in regard to the strength of the fortifications on the land side and the presence of the allied fleets was the undeniable cause of one russian fleet being sunk in the harbor of sebastopol while another dared not venture out season after season from behind stone fortresses in the shallow waters of kronstadt a great naval authority thinks that while england was at the time almost totally deficient in the class of vessels essential to attacking the fleets and fortifications of russia the fact that the former never dared to accept the challenge of any british squadron however small is one the record of which we certainly may read about without shame but of that period it would be more pleasant to write exultingly than apologetically when the allies had decided to commence the bombardment of sebastopol on october seventeenth eighteen fifty four it was understood that the fleet should cooperate and that the attack should be made by line of battleships in a semicircle they were ready at one p m to commence the bombardment lyons brought the agamemnon followed by half a dozen other vessels to within seven hundred yards of fort constantine the other staying at the safer distance of eighteen hundred to twenty two hundred yards the whole fleet opened with a tremendous roar of artillery to which the russians replied almost as heavily fort constantine was several times silenced and greatly damaged but on the other hand the russians managed to kill forty-seven and wound two hundred thirty-four men in the english fleet and a slightly smaller number in the french they had an unpleasant knack of firing red-hot shot in profusion and of hitting the vessels even at the distance at which they lay several were set on fire and two for a time had to retire from the action these were practical shots at our wooden walls this naval attack has been characterized as even a greater failure than that by land meaning of course the first attack here we may for a moment be allowed to digress and remind the reader of the important part played by red-hot shot at that greatest of all great sieges gibraltar as each accession to the enemy's force arrived general elliot calmly built more furnaces and more grates for heating his most effective means of defense just as one of their wooden batteries was on the point of completion he gave it what was termed at the time a dose of cayenne pepper in other words with red-hot shot and shells he set it on fire when the ordnance portable furnaces for heating shot proved insufficient to supply the demands of the artillery he ordered large bonfires to be kindled on which the cannon-balls were thrown and these supplies were termed by the soldiers hot potatoes for the enemy but the great triumph of red-hot shot was on that memorable thirteenth of september seventeen eighty two 
when forty-six sail of the line and a countless fleet of gun and mortar boats attacked the fortress with all these appliances of warfare the great confidence of the enemy or rather combined enemies was in their floating batteries planned by d'arcon an eminent french engineer and which had cost a good half million sterling they were supposed to be impervious to shells or red-hot shot after persistently firing at the fleet elliot started the admiral's ship in one of the batteries commanded by the prince of nassau this was but the commencement of the end the unwieldy leviathans could not be shifted from their moorings and they lay helpless and immovable and yet dangerous to their neighbors for they were filled with the instruments of destruction early the next morning eight of these vaunted batteries indicated the efficacy of the red-hot defense the light produced by the flames was nearly equal to noonday and greatly exposed the enemy to observation enabling the artillery to be pointed upon them with the utmost precision the rock and neighboring objects are stated to have been highly illuminated by the constant flashes of cannon and the flames of the burning ships forming a mingled scene of sublimity and terror an indistinct clamor with lamentable cries and groans arose from all quarters when four hundred pieces of artillery were playing on the rock at the same moment elliot returned the compliment with a shower of red-hot balls bombs and carcasses that filled the air with little or no intermission the count d'artois had hastened from paris to witness a capitulation he arrived in time to see the total destruction of the floating batteries and a large part of the combined fleet attempting a somewhat feeble joke he wrote to france la batterie la plus effective était ma batterie de cuisine elliot's cooking apparatus and roasted balls beat it all to nothing red-hot shot has been entirely superseded in civilized warfare by shells it was usually handled much in the same way that ordinary shot and shell is today each ball was carried by two men having between them a strong iron frame with a ring in the middle to hold it there were two heavy wads one dry and the other slightly dampened between the powder and the ball at the siege of gibraltar however matters were managed in a much more rough-and-ready style the shot was heated at furnaces and wheeled off to the guns and wheelbarrows lined with sand the partial failure of the navy to cooperate successfully with the land forces so far as bombardment was concerned during the crimean war has had much to do with the adoption of the costly ironclad floating fortresses armed with enormously powerful guns of the present day the earliest form indeed was adopted during the above war but not used to any great extent or advantage the late emperor of the french saw that the coming necessity or necessary evil would be some form of strongly armored and protected floating battery that could cope with fortresses ashore and this was the germ of the ironclad movement the first batteries of this kind used successfully at kinburn were otherwise unseaworthy and unmanageable and were little more than heavily plated and more or less covered barges the two earliest european ironclads were la gloire in france and the warrior in england the latter launched in eighteen sixty neither of these vessels presented any great departure from the established types of build in large ships of war the warrior is an undeniably fine handsome-looking frigate masted and rigged as usual but she and her sister ship the black prince are about the only ironclads to which these remarks apply every form and variety of construction having been adopted since 
as regarded size she was considerably larger than the largest frigate or ship of the line of our navy although greatly exceeded by many ironclads subsequently built she is three hundred eighty feet in length and her displacement of more than ninety one hundred tons was three thousand tons greater than that of the largest of the wooden men-of-war she was superseding the warrior is still among the fastest of the iron-armored fleet considered as an ironclad however she is a weak example her armor, which protects only three-fifths of her sides, is but four and a half inches thick, with eighteen inches of wood backing, and five-eighths of an inch of what is technically called skin plating for protection inside. The remote possibility of a red-hot shot or shell falling inside has to be considered. Her bow and stern, rudder head and steering gear would, of course, be the vulnerable points from this small beginning one armored vessel our ironclad fleet has grown with the greatest rapidity till it now numbers over sixty of all denominations of vessels the late emperor of the french gave a great impetus to the movement and other foreign nations speedily following in his wake it clearly behoved england to be able to cope with them on their own ground should occasion demand then there was the scare of invasion which took some hold of the public mind and was exaggerated by certain portions of the press at one period till it assumed serious proportions leading journals complained that by the time the admiralty would have one or two ironclads in commission the french would have ten or twelve thus urged the government of the day must be excused if they made some doubtful experiments and costly failures End of Men of War Part 2 Recording by Pete McKelvin